Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor with a master's in child studies, and I'm the founder of Multilingual Montessori. You can find me on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and at multilingualmontessori.org. Today I'm speaking with Natalia Saez, a professor and researcher at Teachers College Columbia University, focusing on second language development as well as bilingual and bicultural education. Natalia is also the founder and co-owner of Traduc Global, which offers language services to clients around the world. She holds a Master of Arts degree in Cognitive Science from Universidad de Chile and a Master of Arts degree in Applied Linguistics from Teachers College, Columbia University, from which she also has a Doctor of Education degree specializing in Applied Linguistics. In this conversation, we talk about Natalia's experiences growing up in both New York City and in Chile, and what role languages played in her life as a child and a young adult. We talk about her work as a professor and researcher in the Applied Linguistics and Bilingual Education Departments at Teachers College, and she shares her advice for both parents and teachers when working with bilingual and multilingual children. Natalia has some really great insights about language development and language education, and I think you'll learn a lot from her. I certainly did. Before we get into my conversation with Natalia, take a moment to hit the follow button on whatever platform you're listening on right now to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating or review. I read every single one and it really helps other people find the show as well. Okay, let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Natalia. Hi, Natalia. Welcome to the Multilingual Montessori podcast. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. This is so exciting. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you today. Um, To start, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do. Okay, so uh, my name is Natalia Saez. I am currently living in New York City. Um, I just finished a doctoral program in education at Teachers College, Columbia University. I'm originally from Chile. Uh, I still work with a lot of people in Chile, thank goodness, because things are remote uh, still to a great degree. So, but I also work at um, Teachers College and uh, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, so we're going to get into all that. Um, but first, tell me a bit about your language experiences growing up and what role did language and bilingualism or multilingualism play in your life as a child? You know, I really I really like that question, Gabriel, um, because it really does mark someone's life. You know, when you are growing up with more than one language or with just one language, it's just so important. It's such an important part of, of how you grow up. And so... I was lucky to have the opportunity to uh, be born in Chile. And so I guess when I was uh, very, very little until around, I think it was three, I was surrounded by Spanish, Chilean Spanish. And then when I turned around three, we moved to the Bronx, to New York uh, with my family because both my parents uh, were pursuing their PhDs and uh, they had the opportunity to study here in New York. And so 
from three years old, more or less, until now, I've been kind of, you know, shifting or shuffling between English and Spanish. And I think my experience here in New York was great. I have really good uh, memories of like my school years. I went to public school. Uh, the teachers at public school, at my public school were amazing. Um, I learned how to write and, you know, bring out my creativity in English. They didn't really tap into my Spanish background or any of my, you know, friends at school's parents, Spanish background, but we did have a lot of, you know, friends from different countries. There were students from different, you know, cultural backgrounds. And I think that was very enriching per se. Um, but yeah, the school system here, I, I actually, I, I grew, I developed, I feel, you know, a really good sense of uh, academic abilities, we could call them in English. Uh, through the school system here in New York. And then when I turned 13, so I only spoke Spanish with my family while I was living in New York, but not in not at school or, or with my friends outside of the home. Um, but when I turned around 13, my family decided to move back to Chile. And so that was a very interesting age to kind of change your entire uh cultural language identity world you know uh at that age right um <clears throat> so I, I i moved to chile when i was 13 and you know here in, in in the bronx living in the bronx i was uh i don't know i i wore glasses i i wore colored braces you know and and i spoke english and i barely spoke any spanish at that point when i was 13 and so when we moved to chile i was actually bullied pretty much because of you know the way I looked and then because of the fact that I didn't know how to speak Spanish so much and so I kind of learned Spanish the hard way as <laughs> we can say probably um <clears throat> you know trying to fit in you know in one way or not or another with my high school classmates classmates because at that moment I think I was in seventh grade and <clears throat> then went went on to high school um but yeah, eventually I got to, you know, learn enough Spanish to uh, interact with uh, my peers in in Chile. Sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and now I, I'm, I'm actually happy that I was, you know, able to live half of my life in one country, half of life in another country, despite the hardships and, and things. But now I feel that I am embracing my, you know, bilingualism and biculturalism without needing to feel like, oh, am I part of this country or part of the other country? But more of like, oh, I, I can be a collage, you know, of, uh, of different um, cultures, you know? Yeah, yeah, I love that. What an interesting age to move back because that age is full of so many changes and challenges socially anyway. Yeah. Um, and to move to another country, even though it was the country that you were born in, you had probably had so no memories before you moved back. Of being there exactly I just have like flashbacks I'm like like how do you say like short visuals mm. <laughs> of of what I might have seen when I was living in Chile when I was three years old or two years old but uh yeah I mean you're right that age is a really sensitive age you know to uh to have such a big change um and even though it was hard I think in the end I um I mean it helped me you know be more resilient and you know just kind of try to see people's other perspectives and not just my own you know like I don't know I think I, I, I 
there's a lifetime still to think about <laughs> the benefits of that, you know? Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> what point did you feel like you were pretty comfortable and like both languages were even? You know, that's a really good question as well, because it wasn't until I came back to New York uh, in, you know, my early 30s. So so I was in Chile from uh, 13, you know, so I was in, okay, so I was born in Chile and then when I was three, <laughs> we moved <clears throat> from Chile to New York and I lived in New York from three to 13. And when I turned 13, 13 we moved back to Chile. So in Chile, I was living, I lived there from 13 years old to like around my early 30s. And when I came back to New York in my early 30s was when I began to study at Teachers College. And um, I felt like the first years here, um, I, I felt like a foreigner when I came back, you know, even though when I was living here, you know, when I was younger and living here, I felt like I was from here. But then <clears throat> when I came to live here just recently in my in my early 30s, I felt like a foreigner, honestly. I didn't even know how to order a coffee, you know, because they can, <laughs> um, in Chile, I, I was already teaching a little bit of English in Chile because I was considered in Chile to be a native English speaker. And so that was at that time enough for me to teach English, you know, um, and so we would usually follow textbooks and, and the textbook would say, well, if you want to order something, or if you want to request something, we, you would use a polite form of would, like could or could, could I please have? Da, da, da. And so I came to New York in my early 30s, ordering a coffee, like, could I please have a, da, 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 da. <laughs> you know, very formulaic in that like textbook, you know? And then by listening to other people ordering coffee, I realized, wait, what am I doing? Like other people would just go up to the cashier and say, a latte and that's it you know, like, yeah they even... <laughs> like let me get a latte yeah yeah I'm gonna have a latte what we learned in 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 English classes I guess in Chile was like so far from what the reality is you know and so just I guess by observing and interacting with people here in New York I was able to develop my English a bit better and I think it was four years living in, you know, four years living in, in back in New York. Uh, so when I was like around 34, 35 is when I started to, to think, hey, you know, maybe I should just, just embrace this bilingualism, multiculturalism and, and stop feeling insecure about being Chilean or being, you know, American or being this or that, you know, it's just, I don't have to be, you know, one or the other. I can I can just embrace my whatever idiolect, as we call it in, in research nowadays, my idiolect, you know, as a whole. And little by little, I started feeling more like I could deal with or navigate the culture here, um, while at the same time um, experience my Chilean way of being, you know, and so little by little kind of merged. But that didn't happen until four years, you know, living in New York again uh, in my early thirties. So yeah, <laughs> pretty recent in a way, I guess. <laughs> wow. That's so interesting. Um, mm -hmm. so nowadays, what does bilingualism look like in your day-to-day -day life? Oh, that's also a wonderful question. I love that. <laughs> um, what does bilingualism look like for me in my day-to-day? -day? Um, it looks like being able to access, you know, um, different spaces of experience, different domains of activities, different types of people, 
Um, like for example, when I go to the dentist or when I go to a restaurant or when I go to a deli, I'm able to uh, navigate between English and Spanish if there is the need to communicate something better. For example, yesterday I went to a deli <clears throat> and it was awesome because the guy who was helping me create my my sandwich, uh, he I noticed immediately like he had like a Latino accent. And so I, I asked him, do you speak Spanish? And he said, yes. And I'm like, oh, okay, que bueno. And we started, you know, speaking Spanish. But then suddenly he asked me if I wanted my cheese melteado. <laughs> and I was like, melteado. Wow, I'd never heard that word before. And then like in my mind, I'm like, wait, that comes from melt. And obviously the ado from Spanish, you know, which is uh, the ED, I guess, in English. So melted, right? And I was like, oh my goodness, I can understand this because I have these these two languages, you know, and I can I can access so much more from so many more people because I know, you know, these two languages and I just felt. Okay, so my next question for you is, do you feel like you express yourself differently in each language that you speak? My answer to that question is absolutely yes. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yes. Like I feel like um, when I just, you know, go on a roll and speak English with my friends, let's say, uh, I I feel like I might have a, a different, slightly different identity than when I go on a roll and speak Chilean Spanish with my Chilean friends, you know, um, and that you know if you if we analyze it rationally, it, it it makes sense, you know, because we you know as you speak one language or the other with people who speak that language or the other, you share cultural references and you know idiomatic expressions and uh, you those bring back, you know, nostalgia and feelings of how it might be to live in either New York or in Chile. And so from an anal analytic pers perspective, it makes sense. But from a sensational, like, a, how do I, how do I say, like, a, an emotional perspective, it's, it's harder to explain. It's just like, when I speak in English, I do not feel Chilean uh, as much as when I speak in Chilean, you know, like, it's, it's a feeling as well. Um, and, and many people, I've spoken to many friends about that question that you just posed. And everybody tells me, yes, I feel different when I speak in French. I feel like I have a different kind of uh, way of being or character, you know. Um, when I speak in English, I, I feel like I get in a way like um, tougher, you know, like tougher. Like, I, I guess I, I, I connect more to my Bronx roots because I used to when I lived there I used to listen to rap a lot and you know living in the Bronx you get that feeling of you know being tough and you know friendly as well but also being you know tough and stuff and but in Chile we have a different kind of um, way of interacting uh, it's uh, it's much more I don't know affectionate perhaps uh, friendly or like you can just meet somebody on the train and already be inviting them to a barbecue in Chile you know and so it's a different kind of way of interacting and I think that definitely feels different as well you know when you're speaking one or one language or the other yeah definitely that's so interesting mm -hmm. I I find that idea and that concept endlessly interesting and and it is hard to articulate like it's such an emotional thing that if you haven't experienced speaking another language and feeling like a little bit different then it's really hard to articulate yeah. yeah. Have you do you feel that when you speak um another language, for example? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, so I speak Italian, uh, which I learned in college, mm. but then I lived in Italy. Um, so I, I feel pretty fluent in Italian. And 
I do feel different when I speak Italian, but I don't really know how to explain it at the same yeah. time. It's not like I'm a completely different person, but right. it is a little different. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I remember when I was living in Italy after college, my parents came to visit for Christmas and I was at a, a restaurant with a lot of my Italian friends and some of them spoke in English, but a lot of them didn't. And so I was like going back and forth, translating between my parents and my friends. And I like looked at my dad and said something in Italian accidentally. And it was like such a shock to me. I don't even think he noticed, but I was like, whoa, that's wrong. And, and I, I kind of um, was like, felt like I was kind of bouncing between my two personas as well. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I really like what you said. And it, it's not like you're completely a different person, obviously, right? But you do feel slightly different in a way, right? So let's talk a bit about teaching. What were some of your early teaching experiences? Okay, so let's see. When I was living in Chile, I think this was in the early 2000s. I, you know, was one of the few people living in Chile at the time who had good English, you know, like who had like a, I guess we could say native-like English. And so I think I was at the time, like my early 20s, right? And so I was looking for a job. I was like, I need to leave the house. I want to be independent, you know, and I wanted to live right in front of the university where I was going my alma mater, which is Universidad de Chile. And I was like, I need to be, you know, on my own and stuff. And so what can I do? I need to get a job. So there are a lot of like these little language schools popping up at the time because people, you know, in Chile needed to learn English for, you know, for work and stuff like that. So I uh, was part of a, a language institute and I earned very little, like for my, the classes that I taught, I think it was, I don't know, like $3 an hour, very, very little, but I was, I don't know, in my early twenties and just giving it a try. And um, so I started teaching English at that institute, I guess we called it in Chile. And I was excited because I was learning from other teachers about the ways that they would teach the language and the activities that they would use. I was looking at textbooks. Um, and at the time we didn't really have like a method or, or, or an approach. So we would just kind of bounce ideas off one another with the teachers. And um, uh, it was fun. It was fun at the time, very grammar based, very grammar focused. You know, we went into the classroom with the topic of the present simple, you know, like very starting off from the structure um very kind of like presentation and practice and stuff like that um so that was my first teaching experience and then I think I gradually left that institute and started just teaching you know individual students or private students on my own which obviously paid better uh and so I started teaching children and that was that was a lot of fun because we got to play games and it came out more organic like the language use was more organic and natural and it wasn't like, oh, today we'll talk about the past simple, you know, it was more like, all right, let's, let's, let's play a game and, and develop uh, our, your, our English that way, you know, and, and they definitely switched back to Spanish as we were doing the activities. And I think I didn't, I didn't think it was wrong at the time, but there was like a common belief in Chile that if you were learning one language, that you couldn't use the language that you already knew. So I was like, thinking about whether I should allow my students, my private students to use Spanish or not. 
Um, but at the same time, I didn't really impose anything, uh, you know, on them. And so I don't know, I didn't really have a very clear pedagogical perspective. I was just kind of experimenting along the way. Um, when I got to teacher's college was when I, you know, learned about different approaches and uh, communicative language teaching and task-based language teaching and learning and focusing on the forms, focusing on meaning and all that stuff, you know, interaction and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that leads me to my next question, which is what led you to pursue your doctorate? I've always been very interested in linguistics. So I, I, I majored in linguistics in, in, at the university. I guess the system might be slightly different in Chile than in the U.S. Um, but I got a degree in linguistics. And then I got a master's in cognitive linguistics. And so I was like, wow, I know. And I love linguistics. And I, um, I want to learn more about the process of learning a language. And I was also teaching English, you know, experimenting with, uh, with that teaching so um, I said, well, maybe it might be a good idea for me to, I guess, dive deeper into uh, pedagogy or language teaching in general uh, so that I can, you know, expand my knowledge of linguistics and apply that knowledge to pedagogy. Um, so that's why I decided to pursue first a master's in applied linguistics um, and then a, a, a doctor of education. So the the master's actually, I was going to stop at the master's, you know, like I, I was like, this is my second master's, I'm done, you know, but there was a professor at Teachers College who really liked my work and she kind of um, motivated me to, to apply to the doctoral program. And so that's what I did. Um, I ended up working with another advisor at the end of my doctoral program, but that's kind of how I jumped into the doctoral program in the first place, because there was one faculty member who kept, you know, uh, motivating me to apply. And so that's what I did. And I, and I got in and, um, and I learned a lot along the way. So what were um, some of the most surprising things since you had already studied linguistics and then cognitive linguistics, what were some of the most surprising things when you started the program? that you didn't already know? Love that question. Uh, I think the most surprising thing was to kind of make, to realize that that grammar focus that we had, you know, was probably not the most effective way to teach and realizing that uh, interaction and allowing students to talk to one another, negotiate for meaning, negotiate for form, the different ways that as a teacher, I can give feedback, you know, that would be probably more effective, you know, for the students in their learning process, <clears throat> starting off a class with a task and incorporating, you know, the students uh, prior knowledge into not just the lesson planning, but also in the development of the class. Um, all of those things were <clears throat> excuse me, were uh, pretty novel to me, you know, because I had come from this very grammar focused perspective of teaching. And then thanks to the universe, I was able to meet professors and researchers from the bilingual education program. So I was in the applied linguistics program where ESL, EFL, you know, English as a second language and TESOL and all that was very strong. But I also got the opportunity to meet and work with researchers from the bilingual education program. And that's where I, my world just completely opened up, you know, and I learned about 
respecting and valuing and welcoming the students' prior knowledge or funds of knowledge, as we call them, um, incorporating their interests and their cultures into the classroom and into the activities, translanguaging from the language that you want them to understand better and the language that they are already familiar with. So you see that the way that I talk about it is slightly different when, when I get into this domain of bilingual education, because if I were just in the domain of TESOL and applied linguistics, I'd be saying things like the target language, you know, and being native-like, right? As if there were like an endpoint to language learning and a yardstick, you know? Um, that's kind of what, in, in general, people uh, believe in when, in the TESOL kind of applied linguistics realm, but in bilingual education, although that is changing though, right? Because there are people in applied linguistics who have a more dynamic view of language use and that there's no endpoint and the context is, you know, really important in determining the way that you say things and that there isn't like an overall native speaker. Who's a native speaker? You know, like, is it people, white people in Yale? Like who's, who's a native speaker, right? Or can I say that this dialect of English is not the right way? You know, like that's, so there are people who question that in applied linguistics and I appreciate that a lot, you know, but in bilingual education, they, from the start, they're like, no, man, you have to kind of like welcome people's background knowledge. Like, why are you going to just cut that out? It's part of their richness, right? You can build upon that. And so I learned so much from the more sociocultural perspective of teaching uh, when I started working with the, uh, the researchers and professors in bilingual education. Wow, that is so interesting. I didn't know about, now that you're saying this, I, I can recognize that I've heard both of those perspectives from the different um, areas, but I had never thought of it in those terms. That is yeah. so fascinating. And it's really cool that you touched upon that topic because every time I teach a course, whether it be linguistics for like educational linguistics or whether it be a course for uh future English teachers, you know, uh, I, I, I pose this, you know, this, uh, I guess, um, debate, <clears throat> like it's valid if you want to take the route of looking at language learning as um, a fixed yardstick with correct and incorrect ways of things, saying things, and the end point would be, be reaching a native-like, you know, standard of some sort, or you can take the route of welcoming your students' prior knowledge, you know, building upon their cultures and their language, what they're already familiar with, um, and looking at language learning more as a dynamic system that doesn't necessarily have an endpoint, and it really does depend on the context, you know, the, the strategies or the way that you want to express yourself. And so it's two different ways of approaching education. Maybe there are some areas where those two ways can complement one another. They don't have to be um, exclusive or how do you say excluding one doesn't have to exclude the other maybe um, but I, I, I do see the same thing as you that there are people who either take one route or the other yeah, yeah. what are some ways that teachers can support students if they don't know the language the student already speaks like in a bilingual classroom often you'll have a like a bilingual English Spanish teacher who knows both languages. But what if it's a teacher in a monolingual classroom that, or in a bilingual classroom with a student comes in with a third language and they don't know that language, what are some ways they can support that child or adult? Yeah, yeah, that's great. 
Um, that's a great question too, and that that definitely links my the not the what I, my my answer is definitely more linked to what I know from bilingual education, and so I think some methods would be to try to connect the students' family culture, community culture, <clears throat> with what is being taught in the classroom. So maybe some activities could be to ask your students to go and interview somebody from their family, you know, get try to get their history, um, or you can ask them to, you know, gather some expressions that are typically used in their community. You know, how would they order, I don't know, how would they buy bread, right, uh, at the corner? From where they from where they live, and then you know bring things into the classroom that stem from their family and community cultures um, to teach us to teach the teacher. You know, so it's like a co-construction of the class. You know, where the student brings in what they know, and the teacher learns from that and takes that and builds upon that um, and shares it with the rest of the class, and everybody learns from everybody. It's more of an open kind of dynamic way of of teaching and learning where there's a co-creation of the, the learning space uh, rather than the teacher kind of just coming in and uh, imposing the standards, which happens a lot. And a lot of bilingual educators are kind of thinking about how to complement, you know, this welcoming of the students' funds of knowledge with having to follow the standards, you know, so how to build that hybrid space, you know, between what the teacher wants to teach and what the students bring in the into the classroom and what they can teach us as teachers, you know. Interrupting my conversation with Natalia for just a minute to tell you about multilingual Montessori consultations. I conduct language consultations with families, schools, and teachers about Montessori education and multiple language acquisition and development. If you have questions about how to approach bilingualism or multilingualism within your family, if you're interested in introducing an additional language to your child but not sure how to go about it, or if you're looking for advice on how to incorporate Montessori into your family's daily routine, you can schedule a one-on-one -on -one session with me to discuss any of these topics and more. A recent consultation I did was with a family living in Switzerland. The mother's first language is Indonesian, the father's first language is Portuguese, their family language is English, and their three-year-old daughter's school language is French. During our consultation, we discussed strategies for how to incorporate all of these languages into their routine in an organic way that best fits their own family's individual needs and preferences. Reach out to me through the link in the show notes or on Instagram at multilingual.montessori if you'd like more information about scheduling a consultation. Now back to my conversation with Natalia. Shifting gears a little bit, tell me about your work with Troduke Global. I hope I said that right. And what inspired mm -hmm. you to start the organization? Awesome. So I did along the way. So between the two masters that I got, like the, the cognitive science and the one in applied linguistics, I also got a certificate degree. Is that how you call it? Like a certificate, right? A certificate in translation. So I, I also, I'm also a certified translator, um, Spanish English translator. And so before getting into the master's in cognitive linguistics, I really needed to make more money, of course. And so I said, how can I use what I know 
to make money. And so I was teaching um, private lessons and little by little I was getting uh, clients who wanted me to translate things for them. And so I said, you know what? I'm probably not gonna be able to do all of this work on my own. So um, why don't I just team up with other translators that I know, with other teachers that I know and create an organization. And so that's how Traduke it, uh, Global began. And it started, you know, uh, focused more mainly on translations. So that's why it's called Traduke, because in Spanish it would be Traducciones, and so it's short for Traducciones. Um, but we also started getting students, and you know, teacher, teachers started joining the team, and so it also became more of a um, uh, educational, I guess, you know, organization apart from just translations. And so um, then I got my master's in con cognitive linguistics, cognitive science. Cogsci, as they call it for short. Uh, and then I came to New York um, because I started to do global in Chile. So then I came to New York to study my second master's and my doctorate. Um, so I kind of put the company or the organization on a slight pause while I was studying here. We didn't really do much with the classes because that requires a lot of education, meeting with the teachers, et cetera. I mean, coordination, meeting with the teachers, et cetera. Um, so we did stick with the translations more. Um, but during the pandemic, um, and I don't know if I'm expanding too much here, like stop me. <laughs> no, no, it's great. So during the pandemic, oh, uh, uh, during the pandemic, yeah, uh, I, I years ago I had met a visually impaired woman, and she in Chile, and in Chile she coordinates a library for visually impaired um, people, and um, she and I became good friends. And during the pandemic, she reached out to me. Uh, to say, Nati, you know, we we are learning English with a great teacher, but she does not know how to use Zoom or any, you know, online things. And we were in the middle of a pandemic. And so she was like, can you please help us out? Like, we don't want to stop learning. Uh, we need something to do, you know, something to anchor us down. And so I was like, okay, sure, I'll help you out. So I started uh, working with this group of students from Chile who are visually impaired. Uh, and I was here in New York, you know, we were all in lockdown, right? And uh, through Zoom and through other kind of digital resources, I started trying to figure out how to teach them English. You know, now with my um, newly acquired, you know, information about, you know, bilingual education and applied linguistics and the dynamic nature of language, et cetera. So I was trying to really create a highly context situated, you know, uh, discourse level materials using audio, um, different pedagogical techniques like input enhancement, but through audio, right? Um, a lot of iteration of certain expressions that I wanted them to kind of learn and use in their dialogues and their interactions. And so I started, you know, creating materials and teaching classes for them online on Zoom. And some of my students from here, from Teachers College, specifically from uh, bilingual education and uh, and another and from applied linguistics they uh, heard about what i was doing and they jumped on board with me and you know began helping me out and so it, it became like this whole volunteer program that we uh, that we started within the context of my organization Trudu global where we develop and offer free um, and accessible uh, accessible um, English as a foreign language classes because they're in the foreign language uh, setting over there in Chile, uh, English as a foreign language classes for visually impaired individuals um, and groups. And so that's still going on until, and, and I love that because it, there isn't that much research about, you know, how people who cannot see how they learn, right? And how we can 
um, modify our um, curriculum and materials to adapt to their strengths and to make things more accessible to them um, without creating barriers for them, which are usually created in society, right? Barriers for them. So we're trying to take down those barriers so they can uh, learn English and use it in for their, you know, interaction, everyday interaction and for their work as well, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Um, it's especially amazing that this is all happening over Zoom, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. And now I'm actually, for, for there's a university in, Ch in Chile who asked me to teach a, a, a mini workshop on inclusive education based on the work that we've been doing with the with the blind students. And so now I'm teaching that over Zoom as well. And, and it's great because the coordinator of the library in Chile for visually impaired um, individuals, she is also visually impaired and she is teaching this workshop with me. And wow. so it's very, it's very empowering for the community of not just teachers, but also the community of visually impaired, you know, students and, and people out there. So, and it also kind of like, um, we like to emphasize on, you know, certain aspects of this, like empathy, right? Having empathy for other people, the right that everybody has to um, to a good education, to education that's accessible, that builds upon their strengths, that builds upon what they already know and their identities and their communities. And so, we try to emphasize on those on those notions and concepts. Mm -hmm. So we touched on this a little bit before, but. Uh, what advice do you have for teachers when working with bilingual or multilingual students? And um, other than what you mentioned before, what are some ways that teachers can best support these students, even in a monolingual environment? Yeah, so I would say even in a monolingual environment, or if there is a classroom with a lot of diversity in, in it, um, I would say, you know, for teachers to always try to consider and welcome the students prior knowledge you know so for example you were you went through the TESOL program right so I always you know suggest for you know people who are teaching English for example to even though the students might be from different countries uh, originally in different first languages to always kind of gauge what they're they already know not just in English but what they already know in terms of the content that you might be teaching. So if you want to be teaching about traveling or ordering a coffee, as we talked about before, right? What do they already know? And so like start with some activities that can gauge, that can explore what they would do, what they would do in those contexts where they have to use a language, how they would order a coffee, how they would give advice, you know, how would they describe a picture? And then build upon that, you know, then you can bring in new expressions, um, and new language strategies that can expand upon what they already know. I think that would be like my main <laughs> suggestion for now, yeah. Yeah, that's great. It, not having to do with language at all, but when I was in England a few years ago, my friend was trying to teach me to drive a stick shift car. Mm -hmm. And we were like in this big field. And of course the car kept stalling, but then I would you know, go from braking to pressing on the gas, perfectly fun. She was like, 
encouraging me like oh that's great like most people slam on the gas and I was like I know how to drive like Mm -hmm. it's not that I it's not that you're teaching me how to drive you're just teaching me how to use the clutch which I don't know how to do (laughs) it kind of reminded me about that like you're especially when working with adult language learners like we're not teaching them how to speak (laughs) like they know so much already we're just you know teaching them English or whatever the language is but they're not starting from zero so absolutely that's an excellent point an excellent point there's a second language uh, learning course that I teach for future English teachers um, and there's p- part of that course talks about the skill acquisition theory so basically relating learning a language um, to learning another skill such as learning how to drive right or learning how to play an instrument and I love what you said because you you know right you know it's not that the students don't know right like that students are not dumb or deficient in any way right like they know it's just that they have to find the way to uh how do you say perform the skill right and that's where teachers as you said could build upon you know what they already bring to the class to the learning experience and help them expand from there yeah 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 (laughs) I love that um and just going back to the uh, your doctorate program and your work at Teachers College, what are some of the courses that you teach, um, maybe that you have taught in the past or that you're going to be teaching in the future? Yeah, so, well, um, I think before, I, I, I've taught a lot of uh, Spanish classes, like Spanish as a foreign language as, and, and as a second language, and as well as English as a foreign and second language. But I think for the past six years or so, I've been teaching courses such as educational linguistics for master students um, who are in applied linguistics or TESOL or other programs. I also teach a course called Founda- uh, Linguistic Foundations of Bilingual Education. So that's for master students in bilingual education, which is great because I learned so much from them because they bring their experience as teachers uh, in bilingual classrooms, right? In bilingual classrooms. So I have much more experience with adult learners and so when I teach this by this uh, linguistics course for bilingual educators, I learn so much from them because they bring all of their experience from the bilingual classroom. I'm going to be teaching foundations of bilingual education uh, this fall. Uh, I also teach second language acquisition, which I prefer to kind of call second language development rather than acquisition because development reflects more of that dy- dynamic nature of learning. I teach that course for the TESOL certificate program at Teachers College. Um, and what else have I taught? I think that's more or less, and now I'm teaching a workshop on inclusive education, um, based a lot upon the work that we've done with visually impaired students. So yeah, that's what I've done so far. (laughs) That's amazing. I'm so interested to learn more about the inclusive education workshop and, and the, just Mm -hmm. the theories behind that. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. It is very exciting. Yeah. Okay, my last question for you is what do you, what advice do you have for parents interested in raising bilingual or multilingual children? Wonderful. I get that question a lot from a lot of my students um, who have children, obviously. And um, I think my advice would be to always allow the, the child to use whichever language they want to use, depending on the context. We know thus far to a certain extent that children kind of identify exactly when to use one language or the other. Like for example, if they know that the father speaks, I don't know, Mandarin, for example, and the mother speaks French, they know, you know, 
what language to choose when they're speaking with the dad or with the mom. Um, and so kind of just continue to foster that, you know, to foster the, the diversity of, of languages within the household. Um, the mother can still continue to speak her language, native language to the, to the child, the father as well. And then when they, you know, when everybody wants to kind of speak the same so-called language, it's not going to be a standard of any sort. It's going to be their own kind of development of that uh, so-called language, right? They're going to have their own codes and things like that. The, you know, parents can also talk to their children and ask them, oh, how do you say this in this other language, you know, and help them kind of navigate their idiolect, as we call it, you know, which is the, the repertoires of all the language resources that you might have. So they can navigate, you know, the all the expressions that they know in one language or the other. And parents can ask them, talk about that as well, you know, very explicitly to kind of develop that metacognition from in their, in their children as well, you know? Yeah, that's great advice. Um, I love that it's like, putting trust in the child that they're going to be able to navigate all of these languages that we don't always have to dictate everything and structure everything. Exactly. Exactly. The, the languages don't have to be separated, right? They can be integrated because that's what, yeah, that's why we call it an idiolect because everything's kind of integrated. And I love what you said about trusting the child because that's giving the child agency over their learning um, process. And, that, and that's also another recommendation <laughs> to give them kind of the agency to create, you know, maybe they could create songs or stories and see, you know, from different cultures and see how they um, integrate their resources. Well, is there anything else that I didn't ask you or that you wanted to expand on? This might be something that, uh, I could have also mentioned regarding your question about, you know, the what what advice would I give to parents who are raising bilingual, multilingual children is that by knowing more than one language at a young age, that makes it easier for them to learn additional languages later in life. And like we were talking about before, um, just that idea that like there is no end point in language learning, there is no um, point where you have arrived and then that's it. I feel like that's a pretty new concept as well as the idea that um, in bilingual education, you're not trying to like erase the other language or to have the dominant majority language take over the other language that we really are trying to support both languages. I think that's pretty new. Yeah, you said it very well. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because back in the day, or still there are people who, who think that there is a target language, right? As if there were an endpoint. Um, but what you're saying uh, really does highlight the importance of context as well. So what type of language are you going to use in what context, right? So we do have to look more at the context. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Yay! This was a this great was conversation. I yeah. love it. I loved it too. It was a lot of fun. Thank you again to Natalia for joining me for this conversation. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. 
Make sure you're subscribed to the Multilingual Montessori Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review on whatever app you're listening through. It helps more people find the show, and I really do read every single one. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.